0: Good morning, church. It is uh, it is my joy, and it's an honor to have the opportunity to stand before you this morning. To say I love getting to preach God's word would be an understatement. I, I really do love it, and I very much appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to do what I do. Um, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians. Uh, this This series, for me, personally has been a huge blessing there is such a rich history behind this text there's a rich history behind the whole Bible but this text we believe was the first letter written by the Apostle Paul directly following his first missionary journey and he was stoned on that journey there was an uprising against his ministry on that journey and no sooner does he get back to his home church then he hears a report of some of those same people that stoned him and rose against him coming against the early uh, converts in the region he evangelized during his first missionary journey which was the region, region of Galatia. So he gets back to his home church and he starts writing, I believe furiously, quickly, a letter to get into the hands of those early Christians to help them understand the nature of the transformation they had experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter one, Paul kind of lays out some basics. And in chapter two, he confronts some people. And in chapter three, he begins what is called his theological argument. The overarching theme in the book is freedom. And Paul starts his theological argument arguing that Abraham believed God and his belief led God to impart unto him righteousness. And so he goes from there into the promise God made to Abraham. So he talks about the theology behind the Abrahamic covenant. And now he's going to talk about the nature of the promise of that covenant. So I need everybody to just do this. Take a big, deep breath. Big breath, let that out slowly. Just roll your shoulders a little bit, relax. We're going to do some theology this morning, but I'm telling you, if I can do it, you can do it, all right? So buckle up, stay relaxed. I'm going to check your level of relaxation throughout as we go through this, and I promise you this is going to be something that's a blessing to you, okay? So we've got up on the screen here two rings, and there's probably no better uh, promise a person can make than to pledge themselves to someone else in marriage. And certainly this is used throughout scripture as a metaphor for the working of God towards his bride, the church. And so it's with that idea that we approach our teaching in the, la- in the last part of Galatians 3. I'm going to start reading to you in verse 15. And Paul here gives us an example of the nature of the promise of Abraham through their current life. Through their current life. So let's Pick up in uh, Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. The Bible says this Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So Paul moves from this idea of the faith of Abraham into the promise God made to Abraham. And here's his intention. He hopes this morning to show us, and at the time of this writing, to show the Gentile Christians in Galatia that the promise God made to Abraham predated the law and thus was still effective when the law was given to Moses on Sinai. Now, if he can show the predating of the covenant God made to Abraham, of the promise God gave to Abraham, and he can show the nature of of a person who gets to inherit that, then he can better clarify the function of the law in the lives of his new converts in the area of Galatia. So he first starts off saying, wait a second, let's just forget theology for a second. Let's talk about an example from everyday life, a present covenant example. In other words, what he says is that if two people have a covenant that's been duly established, no one can set that aside. Today, this would be like a judgment made by a judge or a document notarized by a notary. A while back, probably better than a decade ago, I worked at a bank. I was a teller and then I was a personal banker. And one of my roles was to notarize documents that had to go in effect and be lasting based on the nature of the situation. So people would come into my office and I would get two forms of ID, a thumbprint, DNA test, hair sample, urine sample. It wasn't quite that invasive. And once I had some credible evidence that the people before me were, in fact, the people who they said they were, I would witness them signing on a line in agreement with whatever the document propagated. After they would sign, then I would sign, I would stamp my little notary stamp on there, and I'd feel all important and special. But at the point the document was signed, there was nothing they could do to go back and nullify the document. I've had the opportunity to sit in courtrooms and watch judges rule in court cases, and the effect is similar. The moment a judge passes a ruling, the ruling is made law. There's no getting around it. It's lasting. It's set. It's transcendent of circumstance in that point. So the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you know in your own life when two people come together and they duly establish a human covenant, there is no way to set it aside or to make it null and void. He's saying that's the nature of God's covenant with Abraham. It predated the law, it was before the law, and it was effective throughout the law. So once he argues from that particular example, he moves into the way the covenant is fulfilled through the seed, plural, of Abraham. What's he say here? The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The focus here is on a past covenant example. He uses the present. He says, take theology out and just get a sense for what would happen in your life if you agreed on a covenant with somebody. And now he says, but God made a promise to Abraham, and the people that inherited the promise, the way they inherit it, is through the seed, through the seed. And what Paul's argument here is, it's not a biological inheritance of the promise. This is a major theme for the writings of Paul in Galatians 3. He says it's a spiritual inheritance through the seed. Not seeds biologically, but the seed spiritually. And what's the seed that they've been waiting on? Paul says that's clear. It's the Lord Jesus Christ So in effect, this is what the Judaizers were saying, and this is is the group of people Paul is writing against, the Jews who were telling Gentiles that they had to convert to and obey the Mosaic Law and Jewish food restrictions and circumcision to be Christians. He's writing against those people, and he's writing for the understanding of Gentile converts. And the idea we get after reading this is something along the lines of this. Maybe you've even done this before in your life. Paul's saying, look, if God would have made the promise to Abraham, and only, and, and only after would have said, it's through the law you inherit the promise, the way we would understand that today is like, it'd be going to a child and saying, hey, bud, you, you remember that new bike at Walmart that you really, really wanted to get, that nice red one that looked like it just, pow, just like a rocket shoot off the second you got onto it? I'm gonna get you that for Christmas, bud. I promise you, I'm gonna get you that for Christmas unconditionally promised and then six months later two months before Christmas me going to my same son and saying hey bud do you remember that promise I made to you about the bicycle yeah dad that was awesome I got this vision of this red bicycle that would just go fast and be so fun to ride and I've been thinking about it all year and I can't wait to go by the tree Christmas morning and open up the the huge box that the bicycle is in and then me saying okay bud, now listen I know I made you that promise but there are some things you're gonna have to do now to get the promise you gotta start making your bed every morning you gotta eat your peas and carrots you gotta say yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am and unless you do all of those things you're not gonna get the opportunity to inherit the blessing of the promise I made to you those six months ago when I told you unconditionally that I would give you the bicycle Paul says, that's what's happening right here. The promise was the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now what the Judaizers are saying is, it's not the seed, it's the law. you got to do what the law says. And Paul's saying, no way, the promise came before the law. So what then is the function of the law? That's what he's getting ready to tell us. He gives us an example from life first with the covenant, the promise God made to Abraham. Now in verse 19, he gives us an example from the law. The Bible says this, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. I'm going to pause right there. So Paul said, okay, theology aside, let's just talk about covenants. And then he says, okay, now that we've got that once a covenant is established, there's no way around it, let's talk about who the fulfillment of that covenant was. He says it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't then say God made a promise and then piled on top of that promise all these restrictions, which would be like saying to our children, hey, during Christmas you're going to get this gift, and six months later us pile all these restrictions onto our children. And in verse 21 he says, is the law therefore opposed... To the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, are you ready? Take a deep breath. Let me hear it. I got to hear it. I need some. Okay, now, let it out real slow, alright, we're, we're a third of the way done. You got, I told you you could do this, okay? This is deep theology, it's not, un, not, it's not not doable. So he's just giving us an example from the law, and that's what he's talking about. He's giving us an example from life, now he's giving us an example from law. There are a few things that I want to mention, four to be exact, about this particular example. Here's how Paul starts off this uh, section. Why then was the law given at all? That's a rhetorical question. I think Paul mentions that because it's his best guess at the argument the Judaizers are going to make against what he has just said. In other words, I think what Paul's thinking at this point is the Judaizers will say, okay, Paul, we'll give you that. A covenant once duly established can't be nullified or void and there's no way around it, fine. And you know what? We're even willing to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant but if all that's true why would god have given us the law in the first place there had to be a purpose paul didn't there that's exactly what he says why then was the law given at all i want to i want to see a show of hands how many of you have ever seen or read the story of pinocchio raise your hand awesome most of you now you can tell based on the metaphors i've used so far a red bicycle for christmas in the story of Pinocchio what ages my kids are can't you your best guess would be around from ages two to seven you'd be exactly right okay but here's what's useful about this Pinocchio metaphor there is a a physical manifestation of Pinocchio's conscience in the Disney movie called Pinocchio it's a cricket and his name is Jiminy some of you were paying attention now Jiminy sings a song to Pinocchio, about the nature of the function of his conscience. And and the the line that helps us for our discussion today, as it relates to the reason the law was given, goes something like this. Always let your conscience be your guide. That's the line. That's what's useful for our discussion today. Jiminy Cricket says, Pinocchio, look, just let your conscience be your guide. Well, here's the truth about that error in thinking, friend. Often in life, it is our best thinking that gets us into our worst trouble. Can I get an amen? Amen. Often it is our best thinking that gets us into our worst trouble. So arbitrarily letting our conscience be our guide doesn't guarantee the kind of results we're after. Think about the Israelite people. They're in Egypt, they're slaves. Moses leads them out. What's almost the first thing they start to do? They start to complain. The people complained in the wilderness that the water was bitter, and then they wanted to stone Moses later because there wasn't enough water to drink. When Moses went up to Sinai, the people were down below the mountain building a calf to worship. The Israelites' best thinking led to some of their worst behavior. When the Israelites let their conscience be their guide, they sinned. So it is with us. Such is the reason we needed, that God's people needed, the law. The law was added because of transgressions. God had delivered his people, the Abrahamic promise stood fast, God was going to lead a a, a man to this earth such that the promise would be fulfilled. And the sin of the Israelite people mandated a covenant that God established with Moses so that the transgressions they experienced could be mitigated. But there's a really important word in verse 19 and the word is until if the purpose of the law is to reveal sin and remit curse and to remind us of the punishment mandated by our sin the third function is the law was intended to be temporary until the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the promise was fulfilled Paul goes on to mention the provider of the law now in the story of God giving the law to Moses We know for certain that the law was given by God. So what's up with this mention of the angels as the providers of the law? Let me give you a couple of uh, verses here. Jude 9, the archangel Michael and the devil are arguing about the body of Moses. In Acts 7.53, Luke says, You've received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. In record, to some ministry that's happening in Acts 7. And in Hebrews 2.2, the writer, Apollos or Paul, says... For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. Here's the idea. That the angels were kind of the guardians of and experts in the law. Based on the biblical narrative at Sinai, what we think is that the angels were a part of that experience. So why is Paul mentioning this now? His intent is to give you some idea of the parties involved in receiving the law as it relates to the party involved in receiving the promise. The person who received the law was Moses. But the law was intended for the Israelites, so Moses was a mediator. In other words, for the law, there had to be a mediator between God and man. At that moment, it was Moses who mediated the law. But in terms of the promise God made to Abraham, there was no mediator. And Paul's intent is to clearly show that if there's a mediator, it's less magnitudinal or powerful and, more, and less important. There was no mediator when God gave the promise to, Moses, to Abraham. There was when God gave the promise uh, and the covenants to Moses. So that means that the position of the law is unique. The position of the law is unique. The law was given to prove something. We've already kind of mentioned it. The law was given to prove that man was sinful and that sin must be punished and that punishment would occur unless sacrifice and atonement was made. But the promise was given to provide something. The promise was given to Abraham that the blessing would come to his seed, Through his seed in the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the promise God made to Abraham is about the promise God makes to us that Christ is coming and has come, and that through him we might be made righteous. Okay, another deep breath. Big and deep, let it out. Two thirds of the way done, man. You can see the home plate. We're right here near the end. Paul's given us an example from life. He's given us an example from law. Now he's going to give us an example from liberty. In verse 23, I'm going to pick up the text here. The Bible says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come that would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith now that this faith has come we are no longer under a guardian there's a couple of things I want to mention here the first is the custody of the law have you ever been held in custody before I hate to admit but I I actually have some of you are among among my number there was a time in my life about age 13 where I stole a bunch of packs of baseball cards from a store kid you not I walk out of the store, the alarms go off, and there's like SWAT and, and police and store employees and humiliation like all there in this big soup. They take me downtown, <laughs> fingerprint, and I, I'm placed in a holding cell, and there was no way out. I was in captivity, and my will and my power to behave and go and do was no longer in my hands. See, so this is the imagery the Apostle Paul uses in terms of an example of liberty. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. What he would have wanted his readers to understand by being in custody is this is the same type of custody they were in when they were enslaved in Egypt. And he would say, we come out of Egypt and we're freed from one type of custody or slavery, and yet now in Christ Jesus, some of you are still wanting to go back to that same kind of custody under the law. He would say, but now that this faith has come, we're not any longer locked under the custody of the law. The law, he says, was our guardian until Christ Jesus came. What's the coming of Jesus Christ all about? Well, the law was bondage, specifically designed to show that sin, to show sin and that sin mandated a punishment. That was bondage for God's people. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ serves as a bandage. Christ came so that the bondage of his people could be released. Friend, I want to tell you, this is the idea that I believe totally transformed the life of the Apostle Paul. He was an expert in the law. He would have been so familiar with everything contained in the law that when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and experienced liberty following his baptism and prayer, that he would have known it's not the law that was the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. And that was the thinking at the time, that the promise God made to Abraham, that through his seed, he would be blessed, was that the law fulfilled the promise. But Paul's saying the law wasn't the fulfillment of the promise, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that fulfilled the promise. We're no longer under bondage. We're no longer held in captive. We're no in captivity. We're no longer condemned. We are set free and made righteous by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. How could he not argue against those who would have put God's people in bondage? There is nothing that could have kept Paul silent on this issue. Because he knew what it had been like to live under the bondage of the law. And he now experienced the freedom that he felt under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for me, it's like you get through all the theology and you see what Paul's trying to do to his specific audience. The main pastoral application here is is really best summarized in the words of Joshua. This This is from Joshua 24. The Bible says this, there failed not any of the promises that God made to his people, but all came to pass. I want to tell you something, friend. Our God, if he says something, he always follows through. Any promise that our God makes, you can take to the bank. When we look at the function of the law for us today, it really kind of serves as a moral compass. The laws that we really strive to follow are the the commands and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus says something like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, there is no way to God but through me, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that you might have life and have it more abundantly, when God speaks to us through his word and says he'll never leave us or forsake us, That he'll be with us always, even to the ends of the earth. That we should cast all our burdens on him, for he cares for us. Those are promises that we can stand firm on day in and day out. God's promises have never failed. God promised Abraham that one day, through him, all nations would be blessed. It was a long time before the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth, but time aside when the Lord God makes a promise he keeps it And through the Lord Jesus Christ God has promised you something through him you can inherit eternity through him you can inherit righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ you can experience peace are any of those things in your life lacking is there a measure of joy in your life lacking? Do you feel plagued by anxiety or frustration? Do you not have direction in life? God promised you that in Jesus Christ you would find life and direction and peace. And that's as true today as it was back then as it will be for uh, the next thousand years if we'd be on the earth that long. I'm going I'm to close in a prayer And if the enemy has been beating you up, and and if you've been confused or frustrated or or feeling defeated, God's promised you victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we promise that we will stand by your side until you are victorious. So if there's a need in your life, we want to surround you, we want to love on you, we want to encourage you. I'm going to pray while we sing a verse of a song. You take this opportunity today to come forward and let us lift you up as Jesus does the same. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and we thank you uh, for your word, God, and for your Son, and that you always fulfill the promises that you make to us. We ask that you'd help us to not only cling fast to those promises, but also follow through on the promises that we've made. God, I ask that if there are any here who have broken any promises or any here who need to hold fast to your promises, that we'd have the opportunity to pray with them and encourage them and that they would experience your encouragement and healing as well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' precious name that we ask these things.